You're listening to an ACA podcast. Hi, my name's Lisa Walp and I'm one of the co-curators of the exhibition Ioani Scarce, Missile Park. This conversation is part of a series associated with the exhibition, which is on at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne from the 27th of March until the 14th of June. And then it travels to the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane from the 17th of July until the 18th of September. The four conversations in this series take a focused look at key ideas and forms in Ioani Scarces, glass, family, architecture and memorials. Reflecting on her masterful use of glass, we hear Ioani in conversation with glass artist Crystal Britcher and Lisa Slade, the Assistant Director at the Art Gallery of South Australia. We also hear from Ioani's long-term collaborators including artist Lisa Radford, who will touch on their ongoing memorialisation project known as Concrete Archives. Architect and writer Lewis Anderson Mokak will be chatting to fellow architects, Edition Office and Mikhail Roderick, who have both worked with Ioani to achieve incredible large-scale projects, including the new commission Missile Park, which gives this exhibition its title. You will hear from me, Lisa Walp, in conversation with National Gallery of Victoria's curator, Hannah Presley, as we speak about the role of family and archives in Ioani's practice. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that names of people who have passed may be mentioned in these conversations. To hear more from ACCA, please subscribe to the ACCA podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and sign up to ACCA's newsletter at acca.melbourne. Yeah, I'm Ioani Scarce, a Gugutharunukunu woman from South Australia, and um, I'm uh, currently exhibiting Missile Parker ACCA until June, and then it moves on to IMA in the middle of July. And I'm Dimity Hawkins, and I am an activist and a researcher and a little bit of an academic these days as well, um, looking into nuclear issues and nuclear colonialism and have a particular interest in the nuclear testing that happened both here in Australia and across the Pacific. I was also part of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, which uh, won a Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. Jingi Walla, my name is Michaela Saunders. Uh, I'm a Guri and Lebanese writer, teacher and community researcher. Um, my writing and my teaching has always been centred on um, you know, Aboriginal sovereignty and resistance to colonisation and neo-colonisation. So that's where my interest in these topics lie. Um, I'm definitely not an activist or an expert. I'm not any kind of artist, but um, I have written a little bit. I, I wrote recently about Ioanni's work um, and how one of her installations speaks to the ways that Aboriginal artists have always been really staunch in um, bearing witness to these atrocities and um, keeping it in memory. I'm not sure if you know, Dimity, we were supposed to do this with Karina Lester, who wasn't able to make it. So we were going to talk about mainly um, kind of Karina and Ioanni's history 
family and community history of like nuclear colonization and then kind of hopefully lead towards talking about memorialization so um we can i mean we could still talk about this because obviously you've done a lot of important work in this area um but i don't really know much about you personally so do you have a like family or community kind of background that sparked your interest in this? I mean, you don't, and you don't have to answer that now. I was just, I wasn't sure whether that's a good question to ask you. Yeah, no, I, I mean, yes and no. Um, I, I'm, I'm not um, First Nations myself, um, but long time Australian, you know, born up on Wiradjuri country up in New South Wales. Um, and um, have worked for a long time with lots of mob um, on nuclear issues around Australia, including a lot with the Gugadam mob. And so, um, and uh, you know, certainly very close to Karina's family um, and others as well. So there's that interest. I grew up in the Pacific, though. So I grew up in, I was born here in Australia, but moved over to Fiji. So grew up in the Pacific during the nuclear testing there. I mean, we all did, right? But because um, the nuclear testing went on for so long. Um, and that's, I guess, where the genesis of my interest in this came from. Um, and certainly that's developed over the years, coming back to Australia, you know, learning more about the Australian story as I went into my adulthood. Didn't learn much of it at school. Uh, and I think that's probably pretty common for most people. But as I learned it more in my adulthood, became much more involved um, through that as well. Um, that's a that's a that's a short version. So, Dimity, you spoke just earlier about how you kind of came into this. Um, should we get Yoani to talk about your kind of family and community history with this, with nuclear colonisation? Um, yeah, I think because people ask me quite a lot actually since I started making artworks related to the nuclear um, testing in South Australia and um, there were, I think people are always curious about what the connection is to it and um, and so I said to them, you know, like people who are interested that I grew up with that knowledge of, of the nuclear tests and it was particularly through um, uh, the time that I was living in Alice Springs um, in the, like, early 80, 1980s actually and my mum used to work for the Institute for Aboriginal Development and uh, I used to, and I've said this previously, I think um, I used to wag school quite a lot um in Alice um you know <laughs> I think some people can relate to that but um I used to yeah I think I yeah um I was quite a shy kid so I think schooling for me was pretty pretty weird I'm not so shy these days but um but I used to uh sit in my mum's office at IAD and um one one day I met Uncle Yami Lester who came in to the office and um, I was really taken by him. I would have been probably 13 at the time maybe and um, he mentioned um, the story of him going blind. So 
Um, and so I was, yeah, sat quietly listening to his stories and then it, it remained in my memory for, you know, forever actually. Like it's meeting that man and, um, you know, very fortunate to be friends with his daughter, Karina. And so so I think I particularly at that, like, um, at that time too, you know, like I'm a teenager, I didn't really know where it was going to go, you know, well, you just sort of learn new things as a kid. But it, it sort of occurred to me when I became an artist that these stories are really important and, um, and also uh, how it affected Aboriginal people in South Australia. And so I, th- I had started making works about um, the nuclear testing back in 2016, I think. No, actually earlier than that, 2014 actually. And, um, and then the largest one, the one that you're talking about earlier, Michaela Thunder Raining Poison, was um, the first atomic cloud that I made for Tanandi uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Festival in Adelaide in 2015. And so there's been multiple works after that. So I think um, I think it's really, yeah, it's an important story to tell. And I think you know there's still ongoing effects with with those tests. And I think it's um, something that I I've, feel really strongly about. Mm. Absolutely. I remember the first time I saw thunder raining. Um, poison. I, I walked into a room at the NGV, uh, the NGA, the National Gallery, and uh, there it was. And I literally stopped in my tracks and sat down. And I was so moved. I was so knocked sideways by it. And then I walked into another room, and there were the babies. And I just remember how, you know, I was just stunned. I was in tears. I was just like, it's. It was such. An amazing thing to come across and it was kind of like someone had articulated something I'd been researching that I'd been hearing story of in you know going and and visiting those places too and learning those stories and then to walk into a rooms with your art in them was just such a gift and it was it was so stunning mm. yeah amazing mm. yeah I think um yeah, with that, with the those babies, I think too. It's, um, I know that Dimity has done. If you're happy to talk about it, Dimity is. Um, we've both done um, a, some research into strontium ninety, which is part of the um, Project Sunshine, um, where there's uh, research uh, that has has been done on the, from my knowledge, femurs, and I could be wrong though, Dimity too, but it's. Uh, I, like I believe that they took all the bones, but they were particularly interested in the femurs because that's where the, there's more bone bone marrow. And so I'd been returning to Warmra quite a lot, and that's how Dimity ended up. It, we ended up talking too because we, you know, follow each other on social media, and I'd been doing another trip up to Warmra and um, visiting um, who I call my old friends, so the children in the cemetery. And they're, they're, you know, they're the, the non-Aboriginal babies. But, you know, um, Dimity and I have talked about how there's 
there's not a lot of um, knowledge about or even just in terms of numbers that are, you know, sort of accounted for in terms of Aboriginal children. But you, at least I think you know um, the some of the extent of um, the the sickness that these babies, you know, sort of endured. Uh, you know, they're at the the Woomera Cemetery, so yeah, absolutely. So there's there's um there's seventy four babies in that little tiny patch, you know, and these were the ones, as you say, Ioani, that were, you know, that that had a burial that had a marking put on their grave that were known and they were part of a very closed community, a secretive community at that time. Um, and and here's this whole cemetery full of these little lives that were lost. Um, and a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them coincided directly with the times of the testing and with the times of the minor trials that happened even after the big mushroom clouds happened. That was sort of 1952, the first of them um, uh, in Australia over to 1957. But then there was, of course, minor trials where they did all sorts of weird experiments like blowing up plutonium and burning it in the desert country, you know, spreading amazing contamination um, amongst other toxins and radiological materials. And uh, so there's children who died over those periods as well. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of stories um, associated with this and um, the strontium-90 testing story is really interesting. Um, that one spread across the whole of Australia. So like the bones of people from autopsies were taken from autopsies without the consent of families. They particularly looked for the bones of babies and small children, even neonates, you know, um, because they have a strong uptake of this this element called strontium-90 that comes out of nuclear tests specifically. So it was something they could trace. It gets into your bones. It's a bone seeker kind of element. And it's only made through the nuclear testing. So uh, this happened everywhere. It's probably, you know, most likely happened in Woomera, though it's hard to get these records. And Ioani and I are both really interested in pursuing this, you know, and seeing what we can learn more about it. But across Australia, there was something like 22,000 of these samples taken uh, between 1950, I think it was 57 through to 1978, um, a long time, you know, where these things were taken. So it's a really big part of Australian history. And again, nuclear colonialism, you know, uh, the nuclear story, it's obfuscated, it's hidden, it's secretive, and uh, there's a lot still to uncover which is why Ioani's work is so very important because it brings, it breaks the silence on these stories, you know. It breaks the silence. It brings these stories out into the community and that's such an important gift to all of us. Yeah, I think um, just listening to what both of you said and what's really struck me is the role of memorialisation, whether it's through Ioani listening to Yami having a yarn when you were young you know that's that memorialization through story or the memorialization through a cemetery where um you know these deaths are marked um and the memorialization of your own work Yoni, which I remember the first time I 
saw that um, I took my Indigenous Studies class at the University of Sydney to the Art Gallery of New South Wales in 2017 or 2018. And um, it was the first time I'd seen it. And we we talked a little bit about nuclear colonisation as part of the unit I was teaching. And when we we, walked, we went down the elevator and we went into the room and we all just stood under it and we didn't realise how big it was going to be and how imposing that would feel. And, yeah, we all just sat there in silence and um, just kind of really felt it. And I, I've never been able to stop thinking about that work since. And... So that's a testament to your own work as a memorialisation and getting people thinking about what this history means and, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, um, it was, yeah, when I first showed the um, with Thunder Raining Poison as well, it's like that, and that was the first time in South Australia and a lot of South Australian people who grew up in that state didn't know about what happened up at Emu Field and Maralinga as well. So... And you know, like Warmer's involvement um, as as a um, a military base, but it it and they were angry that they didn't know about it. So um, and they wanted to learn more, and that was that's the beauty about art. I think is that um, it can be a, a a really powerful educational tool for people who are not readers. Who like like myself, I read. I do read. I used to read a lot. I don't read so much these days. I think, but um, I like talking. I like having a cup of tea, piece of cake, and a, <laughs> and a good long conversation. I think you know. Um, and I think, and I I think that's really you know it's a really beautiful way of um, gaining more information or sharing stories as well. And I you know I think I've learnt that from living within the, you know, like um, growing up um, as an, oh, sorry, I'll start again, um, growing up as an Aboriginal person, having that as a as a tool actually is, you know, like oral history is a large part of our community. So, um, and, you know, with Uncle Yami and my auntie Sue Hasselrein Coleman as well, who's, a, who's a, an amazing woman, who's a, another activist and, you um, all round, just beautiful woman um, who talks about her own uh, unfortunate, you know, sort of relationship with nuclear colonisation as well in Sejuna as a young as a young child. So, you know, she's not just fighting nuclear colonisation; she's fighting a, a new rocket range in um, in the vicinity of Sejuna. So, I think, you know, these people are travelling the world as well. So that again, that's another memorial. Like Karina's done it, Dimity's done it, Aunty Sue's done it. So the you know, these people have spoken at the UN. Like it's, it's yeah, it's amazing, and it's sort of it's becoming global, and that's really great. Mm. It is. Um, it is lovely to see those sort of stories getting out there. And you're so right, Yuani. I think too about the the way that art touches people much more than statistics. And in this particular one, in nuclear issues in particular, you know, there's this sort of coldness, this cold rationale around nuclear politics, you know, around mutually assured destruction, or nuclear deterrence, all of this sort of very 
distant and cold rationale. And it's actually, and we've learned this through the campaign, the ICANN campaign, which both um, both Ani Sue and, and Karina have been ambassadors for, you know, that we've learned that um, the telling of the stories, the telling of survivors' stories, of the stories of the lived experience is actually something that changes international law. Like that's actually changed the way that people think about these issues. It's actually pushed it beyond that. So art and storytelling have been such a vital factor in shifting global norms and shifting understandings. And, um, you know, that's a, it's a really vital kind of area that is, we're seeing much more of on the international stage. But, I mean, like you said, it's so vital to tell these stories here. It's our history, our, our shared history in this country, and its impacts are disproportionately, without a doubt, on, on First Nations um, communities, definitely. On veterans and those civilians who were caught up in those tests, they've carried a terrible burden too. But it's actually a, a history that is shared throughout this country and there's like serious questions around sovereignty, around consent, around, you know, visibility, accountability, transparency that really need answering in all of this. Um, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm fangirling a bit here, Yuani, but your work is so important, you know, like so important in bringing those stories to light and to... To, to break through and, you know, this latest ACA one is, you know, again, it just brings another layer to that storytelling and another visibility to it as well. So beautiful, so important. Yeah, it's incredible. It's an incredible um, exhibition. I was lucky enough to be in Melbourne in um, March for the opening and um, for your conversation with Daniel Browning. Um, and, yeah, just it... For me, it unpeeled some more layers as to the story and to your kind of, not motivations, um, you know, your, your drive to, to talking about these histories and not just on a kind of national shame level but on a personal, um, effective level, you know, with the, the stories of your family. and um, Yeah, I... I'd like to come back to the this talk about, you know, um, Dimity, you talked about how testimony and stories are, have been, you know, just as important as, say, an artwork and it's always these conversations. And something I really feel is that change often only comes about through these interpersonal relationships. Um, I don't really have a lot of hope for, you know, somebody reading an article or, or watching something on the news and changing their heart, you know, it usually comes with that that warmth and that connection. Is that something you found to be true in your activism? And, and and so does that become a problem then if if you're trying to when you're trying to reach a lot of people? And especially people who have a lot of power and they don't want to listen because, as you, as we've all acknowledged, consent and respect of sovereignty isn't their strong point. You know, um, they don't want memorialization. They want that the shame benefits them. The, the silence, the secrets, it benefits them. It allows them to get away with historical atrocities, which allows them to perpetuate 
atrocities. And, you know, some people think this is history, but it's not. Um, this history is still happening. Yeah. It's, yeah, absolutely. It's an unfolding, it's an unfolding crisis. It's an unfolding reality for so many people. Yeah, so many good questions in there, Michaela. Um, the importance of the importance of story um, is something that we really recognised early on um, in our campaign for the for trying to ban nuclear weapons, which is what I've been involved in for the last fifteen plus years, um, specifically on this one campaign, but long much longer and on nuclear issues in this country and beyond. Um, but one of the things that really I learned very young as an activist was the importance of sitting down on country, like going to a place and sitting down and listening, just being very quiet and listening and learning. And I have had many amazing teachers. I've been very, very lucky in that. Um, there's been a, a, a great deal that was learnt in that by many of us who are involved in this activism around nuclear issues, the importance of uh, accentuating the stories and getting those stories out there um, whilst not speaking on behalf of those people who are affected if you don't come from those communities yourself. Providing a platform that allows people to tell their own stories, making sure that we're doing that as respectfully, as responsibly and responsibly as possible is really, really important. So there's, you know, there's sovereignty within that storytelling for us as campaigners as well. Um, and, and you know, we're learning. You know, we're, lots of people are learning a lot of that stuff, you know, still today as, a, as there's an unfolding learning going on in that. Um, I think your, your points are really beautifully put. You know, there's the, the articulation of nuclear dangers is best sort of found in the stories of individuals and it's a way to touch people's hearts, to get beyond that, you know, in, impersonal kind of cold rationale of the politics, of the, you know, oh, it's about national security. No, it's about this. It's about, oh, it was, that was the Cold War. You know, we understood it in the Cold War context, all of these sorts of ideas. The reality is these were massively the nuclear tests um, were massively harmful to people here massively harmful to people throughout our region there were over 315 nuclear tests that took place both in Australia and across the Pacific over a 50-year period these were on the lands of largely colonized places places where people were dispossessed from country these were done by colonizing forces. These weren't, these weren't even our enemies who were doing these bombings. These were supposedly our friends and our allies. You know, the US started off, the, French, the British here, of course, and then the French, you know, who purportedly were all allies of this region or, you know, meant to be. So it's quite, it's quite an amazing thing. You're right about the way they would like and, and would benefit from the silencing of these things and have done for a really long time. Um, and so the, uh, our campaign has been focused on, on a sort of principle, of four, four key principles of messaging. Um, Humour, because actually you've got to laugh, even in the dark times, you've got to laugh at stuff because that breaks down the fear. Fear can be very debilitating, right? 
So getting humour out there, finding ways to find that. Um, horror is important. So humour, horror and hope are the three beginning ones. The horror is important because it tells people the reality of it. It tells people why they should be worried about, why this counts, why it's important. And the horror, there's plenty of that in this story. Hope is important because you've got to think beyond. You've got to think beyond. What's, what would a world look like without nuclear weapons, right? What would that look like? What would we spend the money that goes into these weapons on? But what would our sense of security be, you know? Like what would our sense of um, the future be without these weapons threatening us every single day? But the big one that we came to was humanity. When we start telling the stories of human beings, when we start telling the stories of place and people, then we start to break through and we start to really see an incentive happen. And that's the process that took place internationally where hundreds of world's governments came together and started saying, what were the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons use and nuclear weapons testing? And that's changed international law. It's, uh, it's an exciting story, an uplifting story, actually. Um, and it's through the stories of survivors that so much of that was able to shift. And those stories, as we know throughout the Pacific and here and, you know, across our beautiful land here, you know, the many lands here, there are so many stories to be told. And they're largely, a lot of them are oral histories. You know, they are being told family to family. It's time to um, make sure that where it's appropriate, where it's possible, where people feel that they've got voice, that they have the voice to talk about what the reality of these weapons are and how we know what they do, the harm they do. Mm. And again, that's why Ioani's work so amazing. Mm. I mean, fangirling again, sorry, but I, I just can't say it enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the reason we're all here today. <laughs> That's the reason we're having this yarn. Um, yeah, I absolutely, I um, totally see, you know, as a writer, I try and use all of those elements in my own work because I feel like it's the only way you can reach another human being is by, you know, showing your own humour, horror, hope, humanity in the hopes to connect with the other and, you know, whether that's through words or through art, music, yarning. I just wrote, I just wrote a whole page full of notes. So, um, I saw you like, Yoani, oh, I just, I have this, it's just the terminal university student in me is that when something like there's somebody fascinating talking, I just, my mind just starts ping, ping, ping. And I end up with these notes, sometimes turn into poems or stories or just nothing. It's fine. Um, but I I try to be responsive and um, yeah, so that's so that's a that's a testament to both of you and your amazing intellects. <laughs> um, one thing I think we could talk about is oh yeah, here we are. Sorry. Um, so was it last week or the week before um, the ABC published an article confirming something that Aboriginal people particularly and, and activists have known all along, 
that those initial cleanups did not do what they were supposed to do and the place is still very contaminated, radioactive. Um, can we talk about this just for those who might not have come across that article and who think this is all in the past? Mm. Mm. Cause it, you, you, yeah, because, um, yeah, the lovely Karina Lester was part of that, that article. So, um, and, um, like, anyone that's visited that country as well, like where the bomb, like the, the clouds travelled, the atomic clouds travelled right across South Australia, if not further. So, but the, you know, um, the, so who knows, you know, it's not just about the the particular bomb sites at Emu Field and Maralinga as well. It's sort of like because it contaminated a lot of country. So it's sort of, but also that the, you know, anyone I think that has any sort of relationship with those so those tests would know that scraping the ground, however, you know, big or however many, you know, like digging the ground out five kilometres below the surface and then trying to bury it is not going to work. You'd have to be pretty stupid to think that, you know. <laughs> Let's go get a, a like an earth mover and as I dig it out, you know, oh, I don't know. Like when you, yeah. Yeah, just sweeping it under the rug literally and metaphorically, right? Literally. That's literally. Yeah, any black fella that would go out there too, eh, like they'd be like, we're not sleeping here. <laughs> Or not cooking food in the in the ground because you can't, you know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, the problem with the nuclear issue, you know, the, something that a lot of people don't understand necessarily, unlike other weapons, you know, or other elements, the nuclear element has this thing where it goes, it's it's beyond the temporal or the, the or the or the geographic kind of limitations of other things. It goes beyond time. It goes outside of boundaries. You can't draw neat neat lines on a map. You know, it goes well beyond that time, and it carries on in intergenerationally as well. It carries on for long periods of time. Plutonium has a half life of an extraordinary amount of time I've just forgotten how many it is but it's a lot you know my name will be forgotten our names will all be forgotten and this stuff will still be around you know unfortunately this is the reality of it um I think that's fairly white fellow way of understanding things for me because of course uh you know the the, the reality of this country is that there's such a you know tens of thousands of years of lived um culture and so forth so understanding things uh in times in terms of time is well understood in aboriginal communities more than it is in white fella communities but the kinds of elements that we've got here are going to go for tens of thousands of years so like understanding the stuff um it's not a bullet or a landmine that has a, a space in which it might go off it goes off, it goes on <laughs> and on and on. It goes through generations. It goes on. You know, there's so many ways in which that stuff affects. And um, the the feeble attempts, let's face it, to clean up the mess at, uh, at, at, the, at the bomb sites 
that were done at the time and then later on in some other rehabilitation efforts are, um, you know, they're really problematic and they're going to need to be looked at again and again and for many, many years to come because we're learning more as a scientist, as a science develops as well, what they thought might be adequate in, in that sort of Cold War time or in that early, you know, testing time, what they thought might be adequate. Because remember, this was very early on in, in, in nuclear weapons times, some of these, some of these weapons. But they knew enough. They knew enough about what they were doing. Um, but what they thought would be adequate really isn't. So we'll, we'll learn more about all of that stuff in time. But we've got to keep vigilant on it and we've got to stop pretending we forget. We've got to stop pretending it's in the past, like you say. This is going on. This is the continuing unraveling of, you know, generations of people who've been impacted by these weapons you know deep felt deep felt in people's lives these impacts yeah and of course we're not just talking about the the physical the health impacts which have been you know really profound for the people who were directly um, affected but also their offspring and their offspring Um, so it's not just that but it's also it's not also the I guess the incredible violation that people feel that they were, you know, so betrayed by governments, um, that their their boundaries had been violated so much and all under the pretense of, you know, um, I guess just testing in the name of science. But it's those two together. It's those, I guess, the physical aspects and then those emotional and it becomes greater than the sum of its parts, doesn't it? It absolutely does. I think um, one of the things in this new treaty that, uh, like a nuclear ban treaty that happened at the United Nations, it only came into force in January of this year. And one of the things that it offers is um, a recognition of a few things that I think are really important. And this is the first time we see this in international law on this level. We see a recognition of the disproportionate impact of nuclear weapons on Indigenous peoples. We see the first acknowledgement of the disproportionate impact on women and girls, particularly through ionising radiation. We see, the, um, we see recognition of the harm that was caused to people through testing and nuclear use, so the Habakusha of Japan, for example, but people here and people throughout the Pacific region, for example, where they had testing done on them. Um, so those things are really important. But the other really great thing that we see is a recognition that there needs to be um, assistance to what they term as victims assistance. I hate that word. I like survivor assistance. Thank you very much. But uh, survivor assistance, you know, assistance to those communities that were impacted directly and also to environmental remediation. And it puts the onus back on all states who come to this treaty, to this ban, to start helping out and to start looking deeply at these things. So I think in coming years there will be massive shifts in understanding around this. There will be massive inquiries into it. And there's a really important space in the arts um, and in, in oral histories and in the ways that the story is told by impacted communities here and across Australia, but also around the Pacific too, you know, to be able to tell these stories in ways that make scientists sit up and listen. This is scientific evidence. These stories are scientific evidence. 
they're important to the telling of story, to the telling and to the to the reconciliation where we can, to the remediation where we can, to the absolute commitment which we must have to never let this happen again, ever, to another people. Yeah. I think um, one thing while you are just talking, Dimity, um, I remember because I was installing Thunderending Poison for the um, Defying Empire in Canberra and it was announced and it was soon after, I think, when ICANN was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize then and um, and it was really um, noticeable that the Turnbull government didn't acknowledge that and then, but then he, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know how else to describe it, but sort of weakly, it, weak in terms of, you know, him being a, a weak person, actually a human being, um, uh, uh, giving the um, Indigenous community who were affected by the nuclear um, tests the veterans' gold card for healthcare. But I remember, like, even the conversations I was having with community um, the few months beforehand, they were saying, what about the children? What about the kids? What You know, majority of those old people have gone now. So it's kind of like there's, there's all this, yeah, this other um, type of illness that is happening and the children and uh, are being ignored um, but I know, you know, like, yeah, and there's no, there's no, from my knowledge, um, anything in place in terms of um, uh, mental health care for, for the victims and the survivors of the nuclear tests in South Australia, and that is for Abri- Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. So it's, um, you know, that's why I think, you know, like I was ma- started making those works about the kids as well because they were like I was hearing stories of children being born blind still and this is the this is the 90s and the 2000s and they're the they're the grandchildren yeah so it's kind of like where's where's the health care for them or like it's like it I th- you know um yeah I was just gonna say I, I was glad that um Yoani brought that up because I, I actually did want to um, ask you, Dimity, about you know that the Nobel Peace Prize. If it would have been for anything else, the government would have been jumping up and down to claim that. Um, I've got my theories as to why <laughs> that wasn't the case. Um, do you want to maybe talk about that? Because it is very interesting. I mean, you know, Nobel Peace Prizes are not given out willy nilly. Um, you know, they they. they pretty prestigious things the average person knows that that's a prestigious thing and you would think that a government might want to claim that but why do you think that's the case uh oh can i say it bianca or i don't know what i'm gonna say it's because we're we're one of the largest exporters of uranium so that's why and that's why they won't sign the treaty that's why they might acknowledge I can. Yeah. Yeah. And also we have a very strong alliance with the Americans and the Americans have a very strong commitment to their nuclear arsenals. They're still they're, the Americans and the Russians between them still have ninety plus percent of the world's nuclear weapons, right? 
they're holding on to those. They, they, they believe they've got the safe hands. Um, even after four years of Trump, they still think they've got the safe hands for these weapons, right? And they hold on to them. And our government claims that we rely on nuclear weapons of the Americans for our national security. That's literally what they claim as their reason for not supporting the treaty. And it's why they have been obstructive at, at times throughout this whole negotiation of a treaty. Um, and, yeah, look, to be honest with you personally, on a personal level, um, I just thought it was very small of them. That's all. I didn't care. You know, that, 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 that medal was given to all of us around the world who've stood up. And, and to many people who weren't necessarily active campaigners, but to anyone who's ever stood up, and that's generations of people, 75 years' worth of people calling for a ban on nuclear weapons and the, and the medal was given as a reward for actually making that happen. And to me, that was always for everyone who's ever stood up, you know, and for all of those who are coming who are going to have to keep standing up on this one because it's a long-lived one a long-lived problem and it's going to be a long-lived campaign to keep governments honest about it. So for me it, it, was, it was disappointing but also mm, didn't really care, just thought that they were a bit small, to be honest, a bit bloody small. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, as blackfellas we know that government recognising, you know, your history or your humanity or any of the work you do doesn't really mean much considering that, Usually the work you're doing is because of them in the first place. So, um. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why we try to defy them, I think. Like it's like, yeah. yeah. Not looking for approval no, yeah. here. <laughs> no, yeah. It, someone said to me once too um, when I started making the work about nuclear, the nuclear tests, and they said it quite publicly as well at an artist talk and they said, um, do you ever worry about the government, you know, coming after you because you're sneaking around, you know, to make And I was like. Even more. <laughs> well, I'm not actually sneaking but in the first place, but it's kind of like I'm, tell, I'm telling the truth. So it's like, but I'm actually not afraid because of that. It's kind of like. Um, it was an interesting question because it's, yeah, it's not, I'm not hiding it. Like it's kind of um, none of us are, I think. And I think it's been, it's been hidden for way too long. It's like it's, it's about time that it's, it's brought to the surface. So, and I think, um, you know, because I think the, the and the, the, you know, the government, our government does rely on amnesia and people forgetting about it. And so... I think this idea of truth telling and um, and um, you know constantly talking about it is is really important because you don't want it's the same with holocausts as well the whole you know and genocide in Australia you don't want it to be repeated again and if you keep talking about it and you and you educate the younger generation about it you make them aware of what happened and what's the ongoing issues related to you know nuclear issues it's sort of like yeah hopefully you know it change it will you know it is changing things I think by talking about it now because for 60 years we weren't allowed to talk about it yeah. because it's yeah there was military secrecy there was cold war secrecy 
political secrecy, scientific secrecy, you know, hidden, hidden, hidden things all around that. And um, and particularly for Aboriginal communities, you know, the, the lack of voice under successive governments, you know, uh, particularly at that time that those things were happening. And then in, you know, the subsequent generations, you know, there's still been that silencing effect imposed. Um, but what you say to Ioani, I think, is so interesting because um, although you're not afraid, and I love you for that, I love you for not being afraid and for speaking so strong and so clear and, and putting things out there, it's an incredibly brave thing still, I think. I think, um, I think putting, you know, allowing people into the generosity with which you allow people into your story and into your family's story, you know, I felt that really strongly when I went and saw Missile Park in, at, at the ACCA. Um, I, I just thought that was so generous of you. It was such an intimate por- portrait of the evolution of your own story in this and the way that you shared that with the community. So I do see that as incredibly brave, you know. It's a lot to put yourself out there. Um, in the world and there's plenty of people who will um, you know attack people for making a stand in this country Um, and around the world but also I do think for myself anyway as an activist although you know you're never going to become rich being an activist (laughs) in this country right there's lots of sacrifices that you make and there's lots of times where it's really tough and it's pretty disheartening and there's a lot of trauma in this work a lot of the time too um, but at the same time, I am so incredibly privileged. Um, I have the freedom to speak, and we have the freedom to speak more in this country, even with all the atrocities. Um, and I don't speak as an Aboriginal woman when I say that, so that I re- recognise the privilege of that as well, like in terms of where that comes from. But I do think that there's a we're very lucky here. A lot of the places where nuclear testing took place in our region, for example, they're still under colonial rule or they're still under heavy, you know, censorship from the colonizers. And um, that really does impact on people. And they're brave and they're speaking out too. Um, but I feel very I feel a burden of responsibility to to be um, pretty outspoken here, um, and also to make those ties to to people all over the world who are taking those stands as well. And um, yeah, I think, I think that's lucky. But I do think you're very brave still, because I think it is brave to share your personal story. And I think that's uh, I think that's the generosity that you show in your work. Mm. Mm. I think I get it from my grandparents. My grandmother particularly was kind of, you know, she was pretty fierce, Um, although I didn't get the chance to meet her, but I think my grandfather was very generous. And and as most people, I think most, you know, I think even just talking to um, mob, uh, who I I won't name where where they're from in the APY lands, but I think they're just the amount of generosity in terms of their sharing of stories because I won't say that because it's it's their time to tell their story. I won't do that. Um, but I remember them telling me some. And two aunties in particular sat beside me and they, one of them stroked my hair while they told me their story of losing their parents. 
And so it was, you know, like, and they, you know, that's that makes me think of the, yeah, the importance of being kind despite, yeah, traumatic experience I think because it's sort of like where you know I you know I used to be quite angry as a young younger person I think but I find that you know like I just generate I just put my anger somewhere else and it, it became part of my art my art practice so um but I often think about those two aunties quite a lot and Uncle Yami like it's like and my auntie Sue and it's like all the people in in that community that were affected you know like and to, I, I wonder too to some extent I was born in warmer in the 70s I'm probably I'm probably affected by that stuff by that radiation as well so it's kind of like you have to sh- have you know uh, I guess draw that sort of I guess braveness I think and generosity from somewhere and it has to come from you know um I think that for me, the willingness to sh- to share, you have to be kind to yourself and you can't be um, angry all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think... Um... I just make really dark work. <laughs> Get it out. Channel it. Yeah. yeah. Better out than in, eh? Mm. Healthier. Yeah, true. Yeah, and, you know, then yeah. everyone else benefits. Yes. Um, mm. But, yeah, I think, and, you know, not just blackfellas, but, you know, because of where, what we're talking about, I'll, I'll talk about blackfella bravery, um, is never just, you know, individual or singular. It's it's about that bravery comes, as, as Ioani was just talking about, it comes from... A community, and not just a community in the here and now, but this generational community that you're part of. And I think, um, you know, I, I'm just—I was really struck by what you said, Dimity, about how that this fight has spanned 75 years, generations. Um, it's—it's it's sickening that you know that has to be the case, but it's a fight that will never be given up, will it? Because there's too much at stake. I, I see, um, I, I've, oh, I, I, I've seen, um, I, I remember in the 90s when I was in high school, I didn't know a lot about, I grew up in a regional town, I didn't know a lot about any of this. Uh, probably my my most information, political information came from like listening to punk music and which is usually in an American context, you know. Um, I remember seeing images of a protest at Jabaluka and I was so struck struck by those images and what those protesters were wearing and I didn't understand what it was about or anything but those images became part of my interest in, in these issues and I think that's a testament not just to like the staunchness of activists, these this intergenerational um, cross community, you know, fight against against this stuff, but also the power of telling a story through body paint or a costume, um, you know, making 
you know, I don't, I don't know if those people would have been um, filmed or interviewed had they not looked so interesting, had they not grabbed the attention of the media. I don't, I think it would have been swept under the rug. So I really see the import, the, the relationship between art and activism in that sense, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. I, I don't know if you remember the hand symbol that was um, yes, so that's, central that's, to the Jabaluka campaign, right? Um, and the gas the masks. The hand symbol was created by, yeah, yeah. The hand symbol was created by an amazing artist in Melbourne, actually, a woman called Kathleen McCann. And she created it when she was sitting up there, um, up, up, up in uh, the top end, talking to um, campaigners up there with the Mirai mob who were the traditional owners who were defending country. And she created this symbol sitting down and talking to them. And it became a symbol that represented Jabaluka, but then it went much broader and it's still now the symbol internationally recognised, certainly around the country, this symbol of the, the black hand against a, a red and yellow nuclear sign. And around the world now it's recognised, that symbol of resistance, particularly in the Australian context. But it's for the for waste. It's for mining. It's for you know all of these sorts of things, and again, you know, just the yeah, the absolute importance of that. The street theater that was involved in Jabaluka. I was at Jabaluka as well. Got myself arrested. Um, you know, I, I, it was a really big part of my activism back in the uh, in the nineties as well, um, and still care deeply and and love dearly the Mirar mob who are doing such amazing work up there in the top end as well on country. Um, but the, the street theatre, the ways of coming together, the ways of finding, um, you know, innovating ways to sort of tell the story, to get people involved, you know, a lot of the humour. I mean, that's, that, you know, going back to that humour, horror, hope and humanity kind of model that, that we sort of identified. But the, the humour is so much fun. You know, this is what people don't realise about this, uh, you know, working on these things is people can laugh their heads off doing this work, even though it's dark and hard and all of those sorts of things, you know, like Iwani says, you know, like it can be pretty hard work and it's very, it's deeply traumatising. But the ways that creativity comes into it to try and make people break out of just being fearful, break out of just being terrified and sad by these things and saddened and disempowered by these things you know the the creativity that comes into that is beautiful it can be beautiful and powerful i reckon i agree <laughs> we i mean, get up to trip <laughs> yeah i that, that definitely um impressed my young still probably pretty um spongy brain back then um I remember I, I was struck by watching, you know, seeing that that kind of street theatre and the the symbols and people's costumes, but not knowing why because I would have seen it on some kind of mainstream media source. Um, but the narrative was these just probably, but the, the narrative was these are protesters because of something, but that was never linked to our own history of nuclear colonisation. It was just, you know, this kind of people are against mining for whatever reason. There was never, I don't remember anyway, there being any explicit 
connections drawn between where that uranium's going and what it will do and what our own history has been in here. So I think the, the, the art and the activism is very important, but we also need those stories of why to, to draw those connections and maybe create a bit, bit of a holy trinity as to how, you know, the stories get told the best or, or memorialised. That's a really good point. I think also that um, in my, in my um, you know, what is it now, probably 30 years of activism um, around these and other issues but particularly nuclear, I think that we have seen an evolution in thinking, an evolution in our own literacy of drawing together those things, you know, our understandings of the ways these things interact together um, and and the primacy of um, people being able to speak for country who come from country, like, you know, the, the primacy of, of First Nations voices and, and ownership um, is more and more articulate uh, from you know from within an activist sort of framework and it's becoming more so it's becoming more recognized we're hearing more people talk about the lived experience we're hearing more people talking about intergenerational trauma on a whole lot of different levels and I'm hoping that the nuclear level will be one of those that we'll we'll sort of see that uh, evolution of understanding um, in in times to come as well um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You know that I, I think that we've seen an enormous amount of um, mind opening <laughs> that's gone on in this country, particularly. And I think, um, you know, it, I know for my friends who are overseas who work on these issues, they're often kind of, you know, they stop in their tracks, just learning how. Inter interlinked these things are and how they're understood so differently here than they are in their own countries sometimes and, and particularly those who haven't had direct experience of nuclear um, testing for example but the ways that it's understood here are starting to infiltrate people's understandings um, overseas as well and I think that's really hopeful and wonderful too and again the arts are so crucial to that. Yeah, I wonder too. Also, because um, with with um, Fukushima, it's the tenth anniversary. Is it the tenth? Mm. Am I right? Ten. Yeah. Tenth. Yeah. yeah. And um, that you know that was that's a nuclear plant that you know, and um, the same with Chernobyl. Chernobyl was shrouded in secrecy for a long time, and that's I think also because I've I've think we discovered that. Um, I discovered that when I visited Chernobyl and Fukushima was that, um, you know, that type of nuclear disaster as well is, is something that, um, you know, I guess the, the government at the time was really scared of the rest of the world discovering or finding out. And it's like you can't hide that sort of stuff. Like it's going to like... You know, Chernobyl, when it burned for three days straight, it was like it was blanketing Europe. And, the, you know, with Fukushima, you know, I can't, oh, I can't believe how far that went as well. Like that's, you know, that went out to the sea. So who knows how far that travelled. So it's, Yeah, and they're even talking about, uh, you know, putting huge dumps of water into the Pacific yeah, Ocean yeah. again. And there's people throughout the Pacific who are saying, yeah. uh-huh. Not our ocean, <laughs> not our countries, not our yeah. waters. No, yeah, you know? um, yeah, 
like it's um so i've i've noticed in terms of just japan particularly is that there's more discussion around nuclear disaster or trauma through art i think more so than anywhere else i think that i've in the last maybe three or four years so and mostly more more recently actually so it's I see that as a really positive thing because it's we I'm I'm afraid of nuclear energy like it's nuclear testing something but nuclear energy is something else like it's you know it's not clean it's not um you know it's not going yeah it's not safe like it's uh, and it sits it re- literally in your backyard, similar to South Australia, just sitting in the backyard. And also, you know, lest we forget, you know, the, the digging up of uranium to make those kinds of energies. And then the, at the other end of it, so from cradle to grave, digging up of uranium disproportionately impacts Indigenous communities. The, the dumping of these wastes, which, for which we have no real solution. There is no real solution for the dumping of these wastes safely because they're just, again, so very long-lived. Um, so, you know, like you say, they, they literally cost the earth. They literally cost the earth, you know. They say it's cheap energy. No, it's not. It's costing the earth. And they'll be around for so very long. But, again, disproportionately impacting Indigenous communities. Every nuclear waste dump proposal for this country has been on Indigenous people's lands. Every single proposal that has happened so far has been knocked back by the community and often led by Aboriginal women. There's been fights against this since they first came out and there will be fights till the the end of this stuff because people will not stand for it. People will not have country being impacted this way. So, um, yeah, it's it's huge. Mm. There's too much mm. at stake. Too much at stake, you know, life itself, memory, community, country, health, everything at stake. And I think that's why, um, so on one hand, you know, you've got such a important, um, important kind of motivation to, to violently oppose this. But... When you look at, like, one thing that um, comes to my mind is the IMARC protests um, in Melbourne about a year and a half ago and how violently that was opposed by police. Um, You know, you had a lot of people from, a lot of activists and and concerned people from the community turn up to protest, you know, um, this conference, you know, full of these people whose plans are to dig up Aboriginal lands and, ship things god knows where to do god knows what and and people turned out in force and they were violently opposed because this you know this corporate government interests have got so much at stake as well um it's not a stake that i recognize or or i don't recognize its humanity but theirs is money you know this is the basis of australia's economy and um it's how people are able to get away Mm. with this stuff it's very wrong-headed isn't it it's a strange way to think. And it, it is wrong. And I, I'd love to give a shout-out to the, the, the people up in Mianjin over the weekend um, at the Disrupt Land Forces, you know. Um, they they showed up and, you know, I think wherever wherever these people are 
trying to assert their kind of, whether it's a conference or a, um, a symposium, there will always be people turning up to oppose and that's been the case always and it always will be, won't it? Oh, we could keep yarning for, yeah, same, same time as like I was, I was thinking, oh, I should have had a cup of tea. Yeah. Um, next time, yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> next time. Mine's run out now. Yeah, no, it's been lovely. Yeah, I'm it's been lovely talking to you all. Yeah, nice to meet you, um, Dimity, and like, yeah, you know, you hear too. about your history and your work. And, you know, of course, Yoani, this is our third attempt at this. So <laughs> I already know you by now. Um, great. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's lovely. It's but lovely. yeah, that was a really amazing yarn.